Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Well, hello everybody. Uh, My name is Tucson Ray. And I'm a multiple addict. I have four major addictions, one of which is is sex addiction. And that's what we're going to dwell on today. I really grew up in two families. My parents were addicts, and they were also very busy and didn't have a lot of time for me. And my grandparents were retired, my mother's folks, So my primary role models as a youngster were not my parents. They were my grandparents. They lived right next door. Anytime I had a problem, (laughs) I went over to find out what the answer ought to be. Uh, And I didn't get very good answers from my parents, so I I couldn't rely on it. And, And so I wasn't upset about it. I just knew where to go to get help. And, uh, uh, my grandfather died when I was 10 years old. And uh, I lost my primary role model, male role model at that point. And he was outstanding. He was really outstanding. Uh, he was loving and caring and sharing. And, and uh, you know, he shared his life with me. He was partly invalid from the time I knew him. Um but he, he lost his ability to get around. I suppose he was not supposed to drink. But And my grandmother, uh, she could drink it, but uh, the only time I ever saw her drink was a little, a third of a glass of wine at a Christmas party or something, you know? So I learned also the difference between an addicted family and a non-addicted family. I saw big differences. I had no idea at age five what was causing the difference. But I could see the difference. <laughs> and if I wanted to have fun, I went over to my grandparents' house next door. And, uh, you know, I could play Chinese checkers with my grandfather for a long time. And he could sit and do that. And he could enjoy it. My father used to say, I never drink unless I'm alone or with somebody. My mother used to say, if you're sick, alcohol will make you well. And if you're well, it'll keep you from getting sick. All the time. They uh, they lived on alcohol. They had a constant blood alcohol content. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't act drunk all the time because their bodies adjusted to that. And, and still it affected them in other ways. They were disabled, I call it. Incidentally, I call addiction a complex multiple disability. You have factors in six areas, physical, mental, emotional, moral, spiritual, and social. You become disabled in all those areas. You can't have friends, really. We just take hostages. We use people for our purposes and then throw them away. I was never very close to my father. He was not close to anybody because that's the way we addicts are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and he... uh, uh, you know, but I struggled with that for a while. And finally, one day I, I woke up and I said, This is nonsense. <laughs> you know, nobody could have stopped him. He knew of nothing he could do. And, uh, you know, the, the AA program even was not very old. Uh, 
you know, I was just I was just a toddler when AA was developed mm. in the early thirties. Mm. So anyway, uh, that's life, you know. Mm. Actually, it was kind of a relief mm. yeah. because we never knew what Dad was going to do. And uh, he had been in a couple of automobile accidents. He had to go to court that very day that he killed himself, and he was probably going to lose his driver's license. And he didn't think he could live without a car, I'm sure, and because uh, he had been a kind of a car buff and mm-hmm. and was always driving here and there and somewhere else, you know. And mm-hmm. so that was just like dying anyway for him. Um. I uh, have been a uh, sex addict virtually all my life. I became addicted when I uh, reached puberty and uh, discovered masturbation on my own without any uh, pictures or anything else like that. I discovered masturbation and I couldn't stop. And I uh, masturbated virtually every day, sometimes many times a day all the way through uh, uh, puberty and uh, my teen years. And uh, when I got to age 21, I decided, I think I'll get married. Because if I get married, I'll have sex built into my life. I won't have to masturbate anymore. I was feeling awful about not being able to stop masturbating. And some of that was connected to religion. You know, I was taught I was going straight to hell as a masturbator. And uh, I couldn't do anything about it. So anyway, I got married when I was 21. I thought this wife was going to fix me. And we were married for 15 years, had uh, uh, seven children. And uh, I finally decided uh, in that marriage, uh, I didn't stay sober more than a couple of weeks at the beginning of that marriage. And then I couldn't stop masturbating again. So what I did was uh, I decided that I made a big mistake. If I really had the right wife, I'd be okay. So I uh, left her, got a divorce, married a second wife, uh, who I thought was really going to fix me this time. And and, the same thing happened. After a few weeks, I was masturbating again and couldn't stop. And... uh, So I uh, went through 13 years of that marriage and had two more children. I was living this this, uh, divided life. I don't think she even knew I was an addict until I told her I was leaving for another woman. And she wanted to know why. And it wasn't because our relationship was so bad. It was because I was so bad. And I was skewing that relationship in awful ways that just didn't work. And so I left my second wife, got a, another divorce, and, uh, you know, left. That was the second family I left. And then I uh, uh, married a third wife. She had been my secretary. I got involved with her, and, uh, and uh, we got married. So that was my third wife. Well, in the first two marriages, the wives, I don't believe, ever realized that I was a sex addict. I I was able to compartmentalize my life. I was able to live a professional life and a married life and then a private life that I didn't share with anybody because I was ashamed of it. I didn't want people to hate me or not want me around. I was a very successful professional person, but nobody knew that I was a sex addict, and I didn't share that with anybody. It was really my own secret. My family thought I was a a great father and husband. Uh, my uh, co-workers felt that I was creative and helpful, and you know, I helped them build their careers. The primary things that I tried uh, were I tried to get outside help, psychology, uh, therapy, counseling. They call it different things, but they're closely related, some of them. Religion, 
Yeah. Yeah, I I tried all that stuff. And uh, some of it did me some good in other ways, but nothing ever made me sober. I went uh, to a uh, uh, college district, community college district in St. Louis. I was president of that community college for 11 years. And then we got a chancellor and administrator over the top of the three colleges who I didn't get along with very well. So the first year I tried really hard to help him. And the second year I didn't try so hard. The third year I sent out my resumes. And that's when I came to Tucson to Pima College. And I was head of the main campus uh, here for uh, uh, seven years before I crashed. And my crash was that I just couldn't handle the four addictions anymore. And I uh, couldn't even get out of bed in the morning. And uh, it was just miserable. I was uh, not only a sex addict, but I was an alcoholic. I was a sugar addict, and I was a caffeine addict. I was using alcohol and caffeine in tandem. Uh, when I got off work at night, I was drinking a quart of bourbon every night before I went to bed or before I literally fell into bed at night. In the morning, I couldn't remember how I got there. Didn't ever have really bad hangovers the way a lot of people do with headaches and upset stomachs and shakes and all that. I never had any of those. The only symptom I had was that I could not focus my eyes. And so I had to have about three big mugs of coffee in the morning before I could trust myself to drive to work. And by that time, I could follow the center line and know where I was on the road. And then I literally all day drank coffee. I drank, by my best count, probably about three gallons of coffee every day. And that kept me alert and awake. And I performed very, very well. And and uh, still people didn't know. They All they knew was I was drinking a lot of coffee because I did that in the office every day. But they didn't know about the alcohol. They didn't know about the sex. They didn't know about the sugar because I didn't do any of that stuff, you know, where they could find out. And I never talked about it. I mostly didn't talk about it because I was ashamed of it. Here I am, a hopeless, helpless guy, you know, and and I'm trying to convince them that I know what I'm doing, so I, I can't admit that I'm insane. If I uh, would admit that I didn't know the answers to my problems, it just made me feel more and more helpless. So I had to at least lie to myself about having the answers. I certainly lied to everybody else, therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. and You know, they wouldn't understand me anyway. That was my attitude. By that time, I was living with my third wife, and she was finding out more and more about me because I was getting more careless about my behavior. She knew I was masturbating on a regular basis. She knew I was attracted to other women. And, of course, I was drinking the bourbon in front of her. And I was uh, uh, drinking all the coffee in the morning so I could get to work. She knew that I was a problem there. And she knew that I was a sugar addict because if she had two pounds of chocolate candies in the house one day, it wouldn't be there the next morning. You know, it would be gone. And because uh, I would, even if I didn't want her to know, I would be getting up in the middle of the night and eating that, you know, and it'd be gone by the time she got up. And uh, so those uh, those were my addictions, and they all crashed at one time. And uh, she finally uh, gave up on me and said, Ray, if you don't get some help and quit drinking all this alcohol, I'm going to have to leave you. And this time she wasn't even angry. She had been angry with me many times, and I could write that off as just she's going through one of her fits, you know. But when she told me that, she told me that almost in a loving way. 
At least it was a quiet way. And I couldn't help but believe her that she was going to leave. So that very day, it happened to be a Saturday morning, I called a treatment center here in town. And uh, a counselor was there almost by accident because he wasn't scheduled to be there. <laughs> so I went over and I met him. And we had a nice time for maybe a half hour. And he told me what the program was all about and how it worked. And uh, I thought it made sense to me, you know, maybe this could work for me. And so um, I made an appointment before I left to come over and talk to the the uh, medical director of the center. And uh, I took my wife along. On a, that was on Monday morning. And I wasn't wasting any time with this. I got serious about it right from the start. And uh, so my wife and I went over and talked to him for about a half hour. And uh, he explained some of the technical things and answered some questions for us. But I had already found out most of what I wanted to know just from the counselor. And uh, so we made another appointment for later in that same week when I would come and bring my suitcase and move in. <laughs> so I did that. The counselor that I had, the first counselor who came to see me in detox, showed me a graph. It was a lifeline graph. He says, here's your lifeline going across this way. When you become an addict, it starts going this way. And if you don't get any help, it's going to hit bottom. <laughs> when it hits bottom, you die. <laughs> And and then he said, but at any point on this curve, you can interrupt it. And you can get onto the recovery curve. And that goes up like this. And it goes up a lot higher than this line was before. You can have a fantastic life, even though it's been kind of awful, even before you became an addict. And uh, uh, there's no limit on this one that goes up. It's open-ended. It's whatever you make it. Now, he was my counselor, my very first counselor in that treatment center. Then I got a second counselor in that treatment center, and his job was to force me, to force me verbally, no, no physical contact. But he had to, in 75 different ways, I think, maybe it was more than that, he had to ask me how I knew that I was not an addict. You know, step one, made me admit <laughs> that I was an addict. And he made me admit that I could no longer manage my life. When he did that, that is the first way I ever worked the first step. I Since that day, I have never had another drink of alcohol. <laughs> and I decided that while I was working on the alcohol, I wouldn't tell the people at the center about it, but I would deal with the caffeine because I was using the two in tandem, and I and I thought, you know, that uh, it was made sense to quit the two at the same time. So I have not had a problem with caffeine ever since. But I didn't get well. As a matter of fact, when my wife was taking me home from the treatment center, she said, Ray, there's another program I've heard about here in town that you ought to find out about. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, it's called Sexaholics Anonymous. And she said, they're just starting it here in town. It was There was an article in the paper about it, uh, a new program in town. And I thought to myself, oh, I don't want to get involved in another program now. You know, I'm just barely getting going on this uh, AA program. And and, uh, and I didn't know what to, what to say to her, but I told her I would do that. And then after I told her that, I I felt that I needed to do something. So I started going to the SA meetings here in town. They were very new. There were, as I recall, there were only three people attending the meetings. And uh, 
And uh, so I started trying to work some steps, and I did get through uh, two or three steps in about two years. But I wasn't serious about the program. Uh, I was doing it to keep her off my back. I certainly didn't get sober. I thought it just wasn't for me, you know. Well, I wasn't ready for it. That's what it amounted to. I wasn't in the mood to surrender again, you know. What, what What's going to be left of me if I surrender everything? But she didn't know all that, and I tried to keep as much of it secret as I could. She didn't know what to expect from my recovery for NSA, and neither did I. So we just uh, kind of lived along and well, after after about a year and a half of that, I lost my uh, health insurance. I had been seeing a psychiatrist. And that psychiatrist don't necessarily know much about addiction. And he was giving me prescriptions that were addictive. And uh, I was taking some of it, but I was realizing that it wasn't doing me a lot of good and it might be doing me some harm and so I I quit taking those pills and uh, and then I uh, uh, had to change uh, psychiatrists because of my insurance change and uh, the new psychiatrist didn't know what he was looking at either but he saw the ups and the downs of my addictive cycle And he decided I was manic depressive. So he gave me a medication for manic depression, which was uh, not addictive. So I started on those pills, and they worked really well. Uh, I didn't feel good. I knew I was still sick. But I could deal with life a little better. So I decided maybe I could get a job of some kind that would at least give me something to do. I was I was a um, an attendant at a parking lot. I was uh, um, just did a, a variety of things like that. And then my uh, third wife left me over in California. I think she gave up. Up to that point, I she had a lot of self confidence and always felt that she could help me. She could straighten me out. And she tried a whole variety of approaches. I told you I tried all those things. Well, it was under her guidance. She would take me to counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists and churches of different kinds. And and, uh, none of it did any good. But I don't think it was, I'm not sure it was the fault of those things. I, I, I used to say, that thing wasn't right for me, whatever it was. But I'm more and more convinced that I wasn't right for it. I wasn't ready. And I was living all alone, in the, as I say, in the Flophouse Hotel and uh, didn't have any friends or relatives in town. I had avoided making any friends because I didn't want people to know me. I didn't want people to know that I was an addict, certainly, and that was my main characteristic. So I didn't want him to know me at all. And and so uh, uh, I got really desperate. Um, one night on the way back to my uh, uh, Flophouse hotel room where the shower was down the hall and, the, you know, the, it was awful. Uh, I uh, I almost went into a fit. I I started bawling like a baby on the way home. I wasn't even riding the bus. I was jogging home because I didn't have money for the bus a lot of times. And I uh, so I was in bad shape by the time I arrived at the uh, at the hotel and. Uh, I went in and I I couldn't sleep. And uh, I found myself in a a very special spiritual mood. Uh, 
And uh, I hadn't been going to church even. And now it wasn't had nothing to do with religion. It was a very spiritual mood, though. And somehow I felt close to God. I didn't know even know what that meant, you know. But that's the kind of feeling I had. And so when I couldn't sleep, I knelt down beside my little cot in my little room. And I started praying. And I, and I, for the first time in my life, I wasn't praying somebody else's prayers. I had been taught a lot of prayers as a youngster. So anyway, I, uh, in, in uh, that very night, I prayed and talked to God, and I made a deal. You hear about people who make a deal with the devil? Well, I made a deal with God. I didn't know what that meant, but that's what I did. <laughs> and I told God that I had to quit my sex addiction and my sugar addiction. And if he would help me do that, I would give him <laughs> the rest of my life. Um, the rest of my life would be devoted to service to him. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> but eventually I found out. <laughs> I told him that if he could help me get sober, that's what I would do. And if he could not or would not do that for me, I would have to kill myself. That I had been suicidal off and on for about four years. And... Um, I had uh, been hospitalized a couple of times for that very thing. I had been given pills and talking to and got put out on the street again. And, and I was able to function for a while until it caught up with me. And then I was back in the hospital uh, with uh, uh, a messy, messy life. And so I, uh, that's the deal I made with God. And uh, I didn't know whether I could trust God or not. Just had no feelings about that. It was just a, it was like a, a, a deal with the devil, only it was God I was talking to. And so um, the next day, I, there was, I looked up in the phone book and S.A. had a telephone number in the phone book over there. They didn't have one here in Tucson when I left, but they had one over there. And I called, and I was able to talk to a guy who had started the SA program in San Diego. And, I, and he hadn't been with it very long, less than a year. And uh, he had been involved in SA longer than that because while he was living in San Diego, he was traveling every week to an essay meeting up in L.A. <laughs> and uh, so with, with his help, I got to that very first meeting. And from that time on, I have been totally sober in S.A. No slips, no relapses, no nothing. And so I spent the first year of sobriety in San Diego living alone, mostly in the Flophouse Hotel, although toward the end of that time I was having, I had a better job, a little better job. I was a graveyard housekeeper in a hospital. And I worked very, very hard on the 12-step program. I had been through the 12-step program in AA uh, with a very good sponsor who knew what he was doing and, and taught me everything he knew. And now I was I was applying that in the SA program. But before I could ask this one guy who had been there quite a while, before I could ask him to be my sponsor, he announced one night that he was going to be leaving town. And it was for work and all that. And and so he left. And that left about a half a dozen of us sitting around a table, none of us sober more than a couple of months and wondering how we were going to help each other. 
And so we started, we decided as a group that we would use the group as our sponsor. And that we would come in and share our guts <laughs> with the whole group. <laughs> and then we would get feedback from the whole group. And that's what we would do instead of a single sponsor for each of us. And it turned out that was a very rich environment for that sort of thing because we all had different experiences and we could all share those experiences. And we all had different strength and hope and we could share our experience, strength, and hope in ways that I never have in any other 12-step meeting or group. While I was an addict, an active addict, I just ignored my children. They didn't live in the same town with me. And I just didn't even call them at Christmas time. You know, I was very self-centered and and uh, selfish. And, uh, you know, I just didn't even think about them much. Uh, and sometimes uh, my older children would move from one city to another, and I wouldn't even know that they had moved. But when I got sober, I thought that it would be a good thing if I would try to reconnect with family. And I started thinking about, you know, making amends and writing letters to them. And uh, so I did all that. And that was the beginning of reconnection. And uh, uh, then I could, uh, if I knew where some of them lived, I could call or write and get information about others. And then I could call them or talk to them somehow over the phone. Uh, uh, During that first year, I got back in touch with my second wife here in Tucson. And uh, and she, um, we, we became fairly friendly over the phone. But uh, uh, I've told you that I left her. But it, that makes it sound like I just decided one day to say goodbye and walked out the door. And it wasn't like that at all. What I put her through was horrible misery. Uh, She knew that I was involved with my secretary at the time. She knew that when I wasn't here at home at night, that I was with her in her home at night. Having sex, you know, that was life. That's what it was for. And uh, uh, as a sex addict, uh, life didn't have any other meaning for me at the time. So anyway, um, we became uh, uh, kind of friendly over the phone. And uh, uh, that led to uh, my coming back to Tucson for Christmas that year and uh, uh, staying with her and the two daughters and... uh, you know, we got along really fine. Uh, and before I left to go back, and I was only in Tucson for a few days, but before I left, I asked her in the most careful way I could if she would be willing to consider <laughs> the possibility <laughs> of talking about getting back together. Well, I had put so many qualifiers in there. I gave her so many outs (laughs) that she said yes. She'd be willing to talk about it. But she said, don't hold your breath. Don't expect very much. And I, of course, knew she didn't want to live with me the way I was before in our first marriage. Uh, And I wouldn't want to live with anybody the way I did that time either because now I had been sober you see I'd been sober for about six months but I couldn't tell her I'm a different guy you know because I'm sober now you know nobody's going to believe that from an addict who's caused a lot of pain and you know essay says uh, don't look for a relationship 
uh, for the first year of your sobriety. And uh, I believe in that very much. I, I don't know if anything magic about a year. It could be 11 months. Mm -hmm. It could be 13. And I just know I don't, it's not that precise. But the concept is there. Get, take care of yourself first. I would tend to say, you know, don't don't uh, look for a relationship until you've finished uh, step nine. After you've made all your amends, then you're ready to build a new life. So I went back to uh, uh, San Diego, kept in touch with her on the phone, and started writing some longer letters, you know, explaining what I was going through and how life was for me now. I never got upset when I could tell that she didn't believe what I was saying. I just said it anyway. And once in a while, I'd add on something like, you'll just have to see for yourself as time goes on. And so that's what we did. And, you know, I started out writing a, an amends letter. And on uh, one of my visits, I uh, read it to her. and. and uh, I don't know how much of that she believed at the time. But I just kind of hung it out there so that she could refresh her memory about it anytime she wanted to. And she had a copy of the letter. And uh, by Easter time, uh, she came over to San Diego and brought the two girls. And uh, we had, it was about the time of her birthday, that time of the year. So we celebrated her birthday and we celebrated Easter. We went out for big dinner and had a good time together. And everything went well, you know. And so before she left, I said, I'd like it very much if we could stay in touch. Because I'm finding, you know, a lot that I never found before when we were married. And uh, I feel a whole lot better about myself. And I'm not going to make any promises because that wouldn't do any good anyway. You wouldn't believe it. But uh, I said, I, I feel as though we have a chance. And so she came back with the girls to Tucson. And, and then I uh, uh, stayed in touch. We wrote more letters. And, and finally... Uh, uh, we got to the point where she decided she was willing to come over with the girls and pick me up and bring me back to Tucson on a pretty permanent basis. She said she'd give me a place to live. Well, uh, you all know the sobriety definition. And uh, so we started talking about that. And uh, I said that unless we were remarried, uh, there would be no sex. I said, but I'm not in a hurry to get remarried. I'm not trying to force anything or preempt anything. And uh, so she picked me up and I came back. We lived together for a whole year. And I mean together for a whole year. We slept in the same bed. We, we slept each, in each other's arms. Uh, we uh, got to know each other. Boy, people say, well, what do you do if you live together for a whole year and you don't have sex? I said, well, you get to know each other. <laughs> you talk a lot. We got to know each other in ways we never dreamed we could before the first time we were married. We got to know each other's values and interests and priorities in life and what we wanted out of life, what we would like to be able to expect from each other and what we were willing to do for each other and the kind of thing that you really ought to do if you're going to get married to somebody anyway. But we had never done that. We just liked each other and we were having, you know, sex uh, was on our mind. And so that was our life. But now it was all different. We were getting to know each other and care about each other. And uh, we were beginning to prove it in all kinds of ways. And I didn't have to tell her <laughs> that I was different as in sobriety. I knew that my life was turned inside out. My selfishness and self-centeredness was gone. 
I was in it for what I could do for other people, including her, maybe starting with her. But as we approached the second year of my sobriety, we started talking about the possibility of getting remarried. Well, by this time, we not only loved each other and were attracted to each other, but we really liked each other, you know? We really wanted to be together. <laughs> it was not going to be painful. It was going to be a real joy because we had worked all that out. And and we knew what we wanted and we could trust each other. And it had been working for the better part of a year. And and so... Uh, we, we had been going to a, uh, a church here in town, and we went to see the minister and asked him if he would marry us. And he says, sure. And he said, uh, when do you want to get married? And I told him on July 3rd. And uh, he says, okay. He got out his calendar, and he says, oh, July 3rd is a Thursday. You sure you want to get married on a Thursday? And I said, yep. <laughs> He says, well, okay. <laughs> and then she and I had talked about this before we got there, of course. And then uh, then he said, uh, what time of the day do you want to get married? And I said, uh, nine o'clock at night. And he said, okay, now I got to ask you. He said, I've never married anybody at nine o'clock at night on a Thursday. Why? <laughs> and I said, well, July 3rd is my sobriety anniversary. <laughs> I'll be sober two years. He said, oh, I've, I've dealt with a lot of addicts. He says, yeah, I understand that. And then he said, but 9 o'clock at night. And I said, yeah, I can't make it till after the meeting. <laughs> so, So that's how we got married. Now, in the meantime... When I came back to Tucson, I looked up the AA, uh, the SA meetings in town. There was only one SA meeting going in town, and it was a hybrid meeting. It was not an SA meeting. It was for a meeting for SA, SAA, and SLAA, all in one big room. And uh, I started going to those meetings when I first arrived in town. And uh, everything went well when they were talking about how to work step whatever or how to deal with a temptation or how to, you know, live your life in peace and harmony, some serenity, you know, and all that. I could understand all that, and I got a lot out of those meetings. But when they started talking about sobriety, my mind went bad. They were talking about how masturbation would uh, be so nurturing and and uh, so helpful. And, uh, you know, if you don't know the sobriety definitions for these other ones, they're very different. And uh, so I decided that I needed an SA meeting. And so after one of our meetings one night, I uh, caught up with three guys who were there who I liked their, what they would say at meetings. And I asked them, would, would you like to try an SA meeting by itself some other time during the week? And uh, they said yes. And so we started another meeting during the week that was an SA meeting. And it didn't take long. We, we, but we stayed with the other combined meeting because that's all we really knew about and had at the time. They, At least that's all they had ever had experience with. And so uh, after a few weeks, I had quit going uh, to the combined meeting and just going to the SA meeting. And uh, they came into the meeting one night, <laughs> the SA meeting, and told me that they weren't going to be going back to that other meeting. They had talked about what happened to them, <laughs> and the uh, the whole group, the combined group, decided they would on their own. They had a business meeting, decided they would split into three groups. So anyway, uh, we, we had this uh, meeting, 
And uh, we drew some other people from the combined meeting, but others who were new pe new people to the program. Uh, what I say is my primary guideline for knowing whether I'm making progress has to do with temptations. Uh, as I make progress, my temptations are not as strong. They're not as frequent. And they don't last as long. Now, I can, I can measure it in some other ways. Like, uh, I think the essential thing to do, the main tool in my toolbox, is changing my mind. If I quit thinking about sex, you know, I'm not, I'm not being tempted by it. I mean, it's fairly simple, but it's, you know, but it's profound too. Most of the simple things are profound. So, so I say that if I'm having trouble changing my mind, or if if I find that I can change it, okay. But an hour later, it's coming back. I say, I'm not making progress. Uh, and there's no perfection in the sense that I'll ever be without temptation of some kind. Sometimes, you know. It's how I deal with it that's important. If there's a woman walking down the street who attracts my attention, I can say, gee, I wonder how many guys she has... You know, picking on her because she's so nice looking. And maybe I can pray for her. And you know, I found that when I'm honestly and sincerely praying for a particular woman, I cannot be obsessed with her as a sex object. Doesn't fit together. <laughs> I have changed my mind. <laughs> And the and the temptation is gone. Now, can it come back? Sure, it can come back. I can start thinking about it again, you know. Or my mind is cluttered with stuff from the past. All kinds of women, all kinds of situations, all kinds of experiences. And I can just look at the blank wall and those movies start appearing you know but so I have to have ways to change my mind or I'd be lost in that same soup all the time if you change your mind you'll change your life because our thoughts always lead to actions actions lead to habits habits lead to addiction We've got to break that cycle if we want to stay sober. We've got to incorporate almost to the level of being automatic uh, habits and approaches that will help us change our mind. I really believe that the uh, amends for my uh, former wife, who is now my current wife, uh was not an event but a process and uh, gradually she came to know the new me and uh even though she had trouble believing it at first even when she was noticing things you know is it true this and that she'd be asking me questions and uh and what I uh, felt and what I still feel is that the greatest amends I've made to her is the change in my life, just being a different guy. And uh, I know that I am because uh, I'm not selfish and self-centered. I'm far from that today. And uh, uh, so we get along fine now. There's, It's just a great... To reunion, you know, after such a long time out when I was running with somebody else, you know. 
But uh, we don't live in the past. We, you know, we're not happy that we lived the way we did for the first 13-year marriage. But but we uh, we look at it as that was a step along the way. And maybe we could not be where we are today if we hadn't had those, all those steps along the way. That was 57 when I got sober from NSA. Up to that point, my life didn't make any sense to me or to anybody else. It was insanity. Then I started getting sober, insane. Life started making some sense. And it was worth, became worth living. I had been suicidal, you know, off and on for a long time. But I've had a good life. It's fantastic. And, you know, I have a lot of gratitude for everything I've got. You know, the best wife in the world. Uh, This house is the best house in the world for us. A lot of gratitude for the opportunity to, to to live. I wasn't living before I was existing. You know, I didn't know myself. I didn't know anybody else. I I didn't know where I belong in the universe. I'm a I'm convinced that I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. The purpose of my life is to is to learn and grow and serve. You know, I'm still doing that. I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. So that's where I come from. That's where I come from. That's where I'm going. That's where I live today. 